Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. I am Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Well, 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 we're back with another fresh episode. And let me tell you, this one is a bit of a doozy. Uh, It comes to us from a very kind and really thoughtful listener, actually. So uh, Jeremy here, uh, a couple weeks back, very beginning of March, sent us an email. Uh, He says, you know, I subscribe and I listen and I enjoy the balance that you guys provide with your different backgrounds. And he goes on to recommend two different episodes for us. So this is episode number one. The second one will come um, probably in a few weeks here. But we figured let's let's cover the first one. He he mentions this idea of the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. And he said, while I enjoy eschatological discussions in general, I find this topic doesn't seem to get as much attention or coverage. Um, he goes on to say, like, he's not a proponent, uh, proponent of less left behind eschatology. Um, but he thinks that, like, maybe some of this shows up in second Thessalonians two, which is the the passage we're going to read. So more or less, he's like, what do you guys think? I know that you guys do your, you know, weird Bible, uh, passages, episodes, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. So that's what we're going to do. So without any further introduction, let's jump right into the text. I'm going to read the passage and then kick it over to Lucas with some introductory remarks. So again, this is second Thessalonians chapter two, The CSB calls it the man of lawlessness. Uh, It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? And you know that currently... Uh, or, and you know what currently restrains him so that he will not be revealed in his time or that he will be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, serving the lie and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they do not accept the love uh, of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie so that all will be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. So, like, you know, like Jeremy points out, and like I said, a little bit of a a confusing passage um, to sort of set the stage here. Basically, what Paul is doing, he's writing for a second time, at least that we have recorded in Scripture. It's possible he wrote more, um, but this is 2 Thessalonians, meaning it's the second time he's written a letter. And he's talking about the coming of 
our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. So this is something that apparently Paul has taught on to the Thessalonians before. Um, and now he's writing to remind and encourage them. And he, you know, verse five, don't you remember when I was still with you and I used to tell you about this? So what do you think is going on here, man? What are what are some of your preliminary thoughts? What jumps out at you, perhaps, as you read Second Thessalonians here? I'm curious what you think. Context is, is super helpful. Um, like, I and becoming the the more time i spend in scripture the more time i spend studying theology studying scripture just reading it devotionally or or hearing it read in church like the more i realize how even the really really big books that feel like too much to sit down and read at once like it at a minimum we should be reading these books as whole pieces because that's what they are um, plus with the extra help of some some better understandings around historical background, we, do, we just tend to notice things that might be less noticeable. And it also just helps us to slow down. And when we slow down, oftentimes, it's not that we find new things so much as we just notice things that we would not otherwise notice. But when, t- when talking about context, it's not just like historical background or cultural background or context of like the whole book or whatever, but it's also just realizing like you could pick out, you know, oh, the man of sin is going to come or the man of lawlessness is going to come. And then you could, you could kind of be off to the races in terms of, you know, trying to find other examples in scripture or speculate on, on who or, or who that could be or what that could mean or, you know, but if we, if we take a slightly slower approach to looking at this particular section of this particular book. Um, We don't need to get lost too much in the weeds of like, oh, who were the Thessalonians? When was Paul writing this? When did he, you know, when, when did he teach them about this? Those are helpful, but, but ultimately like, it's not like you need a degree in biblical studies to understand the Bible. So that being said, the question still remains, like, this is a very confusing passage. Like, you mentioned how we like to look at passages that, that you and I somewhat tongue-in-cheek call weird. This isn't really weird, it's just, it's just, it's just hard. And not in the sense of, like, it's a hard truth, but in the sense of, like, what does it mean? <laughs> it's just, it's hard to, to understand what these words mean. And I think that's, the, the most helpful sort of starting point is to recognize that, and I'm looking in a, in a, in a different, uh, a different translation, but that that's fine. Um, uh, just some of the, what you read might sound a little bit different than some of what I'll read, but, um, what's interesting is this is all about, like, we think of this as like, even this, this NASB that I'm looking at this, at this moment also titles this the man of lawlessness in, in the little like headings that it puts in. And like you said, the CSB does. But what's interesting is like, this is not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that this section, this, this paragraph, this, this unit of text is about the man of sin. This is about the day of the Lord, right? In, in verse two, like what it is that Paul is, as he says in verse one, requesting of the, the brethren is that they not be disturbed by quote unquote news that the day of the Lord has already come. And then he goes on to give them the reasons that, that if they hear somebody say, Oh, the day of the Lord has already come, they should not be confused. 
And the the big one is the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, whoever, whatever that is. We'll get to that, obviously. It's the title of the episode. <laughs> um, that is the big example that he gives to say, well, we know that the day of the Lord is going to come after, or, or I'm sorry, he is going to come before the day of the Lord comes. So since he hasn't come yet, don't worry. People who are telling you the day of the Lord has already come, you don't need to to be concerned by that. So the question immediately arises for me, what is the day of the Lord? Sort of that that setting our perspective in the context of the passage, which is the day of the Lord, it's coming, whether it's come or not come. And then that immediately begs the question of what is the day of the Lord? So before we dive further, I want to know what, what stuck out to you or didn't stick out to you um, or what, what you have to say about that. Yeah, no, that's a really keen insight. It's funny, I didn't I didn't even really think about that. The fact that both your NASB and my CSB title this like, you know, the man of lawlessness. But the way that the way that Paul starts this is now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. So like the first verse is telling us what he's writing about and what, what he's or at least what he's addressing in this section. He might address other things before or after. Um but I, what what came to mind for me even too, man, is like uh, I think it's Second Peter, like Second Peter three something, but where Peter writes that there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, and I think that this is yeah from our perspective today one of those things. You know, maybe for them it was also hard, but like they had the benefit of like knowing Paul in person, um, both in his writings and in his visitings. So, like, to some degree, even if he was hard to understand, he could explain it. Whereas today, Paul is very much dead. He cannot explain his intention in his writing, whether he maybe even knew his intention or not. Uh, that's a whole different conversation, I suppose. Um, but, like, with some of these buzzwords. So, yes, we're talking about the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? What is rebellion? Who is the man, Who or what is the man of lawlessness? Who, who or what is the restrainer? You know what I mean? Like those are some of those things that pop up in this passage. And that's what I think causes us some, uh, maybe some discomfort or causes us to wonder just because like those things are not clear, at least on the surface as we read these words. We, we don't have the benefit of like Paul was once in our church. Paul once talked about these things audibly to us. And now he's writing to remind us of what he's previously taught us, right? Like, we don't have that benefit. What we have to do is, like, more involved. We have to sort of, like, read the text here, uh, read its surrounding context, read perhaps other books that talk about similar things, perhaps rely on some historical grammatical method. Um, so it's a lot more involved. Uh, but I think... I think just like any passage of scripture, like we can do some some work, we can do some some reading and some some theological thinking to to at least have an idea or to understand. Uh, but I think by the end, uh, I, I I won't reveal my cards just yet. But I think in the end of this episode, like to your what already kind of seems like your point is like this passage is not necessarily about the man of lawlessness, but it's about the day of the Lord and like what you can know and trust and believe about that day and when it's to come. Um, I still think I have ideas about this though. So all that to say, this is going to be an interesting conversation. 
uh, let's let's talk about let's talk about the day of the Lord, what that might mean, both in its context and elsewhere in Scripture. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a very familiar phrase if if you read like the prophets. It's it's definitely it definitely sets this passage in an eschatological framework where the day of the Lord, which is associated with themes of of judgment, final judgment, to, to put it in that kind of, you know, think think of, you know, this this um, passage here in Second Thessalonians has some um, it it's bringing up. It's, it's evoking, you know, like sort of the atmosphere of, of pastors in Revelation, like this idea of the restrainer being taken away, this idea of um, Satan deceiving through miracles and signs and wonders and all that kind of thing. Um, the idea of a figure like the man of lawlessness um, slash son of destruction, which seem to be um, synonyms here. And final judgment, which which putting yourself, you know, sort of sort of having that that eschatologically oriented vision towards um, future final judgment also through revelation and and prophecy like in uh, sort of inherently also includes the second coming like that that like the return of Christ is when this you know, apocalypse day of the Lord happens where um, the resurrection of the dead, et cetera, et cetera, without getting too much into the details there or whatever. So I think, I feel like that to me is, is at least, at least what comes to mind. I don't think that's everything that we could find if we were to, you know, spend more time digging into day of the Lord, but immediately based on the use in the Old Testament and and how it gets picked up in the New Testament, I'm thinking judgment, justice, um, return of Christ and and the resurrection to to the dead and to the life, you know, all all that kind of stuff. Um, Which also then puts my mind in in that revelation mode of thinking. That also kind of shines, I think, maybe, shines a bit of a spotlight on who this man of lawlessness, son of destruction, you know, verse four, he who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't know if you've got more like insight on, on the day of the Lord itself elsewhere in scripture or, or, or anything like that before we get more into the actual figure, whoever, or whatever he is. No, I don't, I don't think so. I I mean, we, we, it's funny that we, we just re-uploaded an episode where we talked about the millennium. We talked about like these ideas of the, the end times and the different views. So I don't think we necessarily need to rehash that. I mean, it's easy for someone to go back and re-listen to sort of like that idea of the day of the Lord, his coming, like what, what to look for. Um, But I will say one of the one of the things that I think is a disadvantage to us in our modern day versus perhaps Paul's original audience is and it's ironic that I'm about to say this like we have we have the advantage of history and the advantage of 2000 years of interpretation and I think that sometimes like actually serves as our detriment maybe and what I mean what I mean by that is that we have you know so so I'm trying to put myself in the mind of a person who would have been sitting or standing or whatever context in the original audience, right? They wouldn't have had 
um, you know, left behind theology. They wouldn't have, um, you know, all the different beliefs that have uh, amillennialism, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism. Uh, I think of like when I look at pre-millennial, like have you ever seen a map, dude, of like the end times and like all the different views, whether it's ah, pre or post, those maps are insane. Like the, the people that like draw out the, the thousand years and it's in chains and darkness and like they don't have all of that. They have the context of like, this is Paul talking to us, the apostle Paul talking to us, writing to us. Um, and obviously there was a point, There's, there, there is a greater theological message, but whether or not that message was always clearly understood is I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the point. Like when, when we're reading scripture, we, we have all these like frameworks that we're trying to like fit into. And I, that's what I mean, but I think that that can sometimes be to our detriment. If we've become so narrowly focused on, um, like, okay, I'm a pre-millennial, uh, you know, I believe in some of the left behind type stuff. And so like, that's going to be the lens through which I read everything. I think that causes us to lose out on so many things that like, we're just not on Paul's radar when he was writing this, like Paul had a point and a purpose. And so like, let's talk about that. Let's not approach a text through like our, you know, a framework we've already established, which I recognize is way easier said than done. But especially with stuff like this, like we do a disservice to ourselves if we approach it with the mindset that this is going to fit into our, you know, X, Y, or Z box, regardless of what theological tradition or heritage you're a part of. Um, so I, I have more that I want to say, but it has to come at the end. So I, I this that's my, my preamble to, I think, what we're going to now say about the man of sin, man of lawlessness, about the restrainer. Um, so do you have thoughts on, on that, on who you, hmm. who you believe or who you think or, or, or so on and so forth? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for, for the types of people who are seeing this and, and thinking of these questions, particularly like bringing up sort of a dispensationalist um, view as, as one possible interpretation, like, I think it's it's no secret that the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, like is a candidate for his identity is the Antichrist. Um, and something that I I think is difficult is like we culturally as as Christians it particularly, although it's it's it bleeds over into our broader English speaking culture as well, but like we have we definitely have a figure whatever we want to say about that as this person is the antichrist you know capital a and what's interesting is like so first of all here where paulus seems to be talking about some kind of apocalyptic eschatological like you know son of destruction man of sin or lawlessness like he's he's defined as the opposite of god who sets himself up in the temple and proclaims himself god like that sure sounds like the Antichrist to me. He doesn't use that term Antichrist. And the only place that I can think of off the top of my head, I should have double-checked this, that the New Testament uses that that word is um, in first first John to and he uses it in the plural. So like like to be anti to be an antichrist is just to be anti-Christ, right? Like it it's 
it, it seems like, you know, in New Testament terms, Antichrist is more of a lowercase a adjective or identification for those people or spirits who reject Christ as the incarnate Lord or, you know, something like that. Um, so the, the question, like, I remember growing up hearing, you know, like, like, oh, is, is, is this person the Antichrist, right? Like, was Adolf Hitler the Antichrist or Joseph Stalin or, um, you know, George Bush or Barack Obama or whatever, like, finding through, through, like, uh, you, you know, like, those maps come out of very careful study. I, like, I'm not just, you know, they're goofy, but, like, I, I'm not saying that it's like you sit down and imagine it. But what I what I do think is a little imaginary is all the connections that we're able to find if we're looking for them between, you know, specific world events and specific, uh, you know, uh, Revelation is classic, the place to go to find, you know, this event in Revelation corresponds one-to-one with this event in, in history that we can point to, like the Holocaust or, you know, the founding of the modern state of Israel, Um and, and I mean, a million other things, these are just the ones I'm familiar with in my own, like, cultural context and upbringing. Um, and I'm not so sure that that works. I'm not saying that, you know, historical events do not have prophetic and eschatological uh, import, or that there are not historical events that we've lived through that we can point back in history to as... Um, corresponding to uh, things that that are described in books like Revelation, but this idea that there is a we can we can discern a one to one correspondence. So we can say, you know, this is these two people are the two witnesses of Revelation, and this event is their being murdered and whatever. Um, cause I think prophecy is more telescopic. It, it's more likely that there are probably multiple historical events that, that are together fulfilling a prophecy. You know, we, I, like you th- can think of some examples like out of the Matthew ascribes the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy out of Egypt. I've called my son to Jesus, Mary and Joseph going to Egypt and then returning to Nazareth from Egypt. But like, that's not what Hosea was talking about. Like, first of all, he's not even really making a prophecy. <laughs> he's not saying out of Egypt, I will call my son. He's talking about the calling out of Egypt of the people of Israel in the Exodus, right? So so it's not that Matthew is wrong or that that verse in Hosea does not refer to the Exodus. So I think we can at least we can at least conceive of something similar when we look at like, Um, you know, what is, you know, Jesus talks about this abomination of desolation. It's language from Daniel. It apparently is pointing forward. What, what is this thing, right? Like, I think we can talk about things, multiple things being a part of that, you know, metaphorically telescopic fulfillment type of way of reading prophecy. And I think that works better. And then, so then something similar, it's like, well, is there a, is there an antichrist? And what does that really even mean? You know, and I don't remember off the top of my head and I haven't looked again, this is 
part of that, I should have looked this up earlier thing. I don't even know if the word antichrist is used in Revelation. Um, and what's also interesting is these terms, man of sin or, or man of lawlessness, um, that, that doesn't, that phrase that I could find does not occur elsewhere in scripture. Like the word lawlessness does, but, but this idea of the man of lawlessness, as best as I could tell, I don't, please correct, correct us if we're wrong, doesn't occur elsewhere in scripture. So we don't get too much help with that. And the only other time I could find son of destruction being used is it's a description of Judas, um, which it is in John 17, 12, which doesn't, I'm not saying that Paul's talking about Judas, but what I'm talking about is just so son of just whatever son of destruction means, like from Paul's vantage point writing Second Thessalonians, Judas has already existed. So it's not like when it's used in John, it's not pointing forward to somebody. But what I think all of that starts to suggest to me is is that the you know, like sort of if if we can use my perhaps sort of crude way of putting it that I put earlier, like this man of lawlessness is kind of the setting himself up as like the, the, the bizarro God, the opposite of God. Right. Um, well, who, you know, that sounds less and less like an individual, particularly evil human being who fulfills prophecy. And it sounds a little more like Satan, um, as you know, the accuser, the adversary, right? The, 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 the father of lies, the, you know, the Lord of this world being, you know, in contradistinction to the Lord of, of the cosmos being God almighty. Like I, what I'm wondering, you know, when we talk about the man of lawlessness being revealed, the son of destruction, we know that the lake of fire was built for, for, um, Satan and his angels. That's what Revelation tells us. So like son of destruction, which destruction typically, you know, does have this connotation of like, like it's used elsewhere. Second Peter in, in, uh, in, um, yeah, three, seven in, in Philippians one twenty eight. Um, I think, I think maybe it might not be the exact same word, but the same ideas in Jude, like with respect to like false teachers and such, like this final destination of, of destruction, of punishment, of judgment, for their evil doing, wrongdoing, and sin, and it's like, I I don't know. I mean, it's seen like we 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 see in Revelation the man of like Satan being loosed. You know, like like the restrainer. I, I don't know. You know, an angelic force, God Himself. Like I think there's this. That's even more fuzzy and and and, and unclear than you know who exactly this man of lawlessness is. Um, but I'm not. But I'm also, as I say all this, I, I'm very open to being mistaken. You know, I, I think that um, it, it, in terms of in terms of if I were to, you know, like gun to my head right now, make a decision, who is the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians two? I'd probably want to say it's Satan, or something like that, <laughs> um, which could be which which I I'm not. I'm not married to that idea, but I just think that like, because the other, the other problem we have is to go back to that, like telescopic idea of fulfillment is things like 
before the writing of the New, before the events of the New Testament, before the birth of Christ, uh, Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes means the appearing, like manifestation, because he called himself a manifestation of God. He marches in, he destroys the temple. He mar- or he sets, you know, he, he marches into the temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar, sacrifices it to Zeus. Like, this is, this is very clearly, this resonates with the abomination of desolation being uh, prophesied in Daniel. But then Jesus comes along, and he, when he speaks of the abomination of desolation, he also speaks of it as something future. Uh, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Jerusalem was, was further destroyed, uh, I think, sometime in the early 2nd century, like further revolts by the Jews, right? So, but then there's also this, this sense of... of Perhaps with Paul, like some some kind of I think this is this would still have been written prior to the fall of the temple in AD seventy, but but like you know there there are there are genuine historical candidates, but do any of them perfectly match a one to one when we're talking about these prophetic or especially prophecies related to the the eschaton and 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 like apocalyptic prophecy like. I, I wonder if the one of the challenges is trying to fit, you know, XYZ event or person named in a prophecy into XYZ event or person that um, happened later in history. Right. Um, as if everything is one-to-one and there's no, like, I, I don't want to say ambiguity, but just in the sense of, like, like, the possibility of multiple things fulfilling the same prophecy in sort of a layered way where if you were to, if you were to look back from the end of history, you could maybe you, you would, you would see it, but like, we don't quite know because we're in the midst of history. We even, even stuff that happened before us, do we, you know, because there were, um, you know, a, a relative, I don't, I don't know how common, but there, there was a not unusual, um, line in the Reformation that the Pope was the Antichrist. You see this in a lot of confessional, Reformational con- confessional documents. And this is a verse that, that seems to make sense of that because the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Western Church, was the church, the temple of God. And the Pope, in the eyes of, of some of these reformers, through various abuses and, and um, developments and, um, you know, heretical or false teachings that had crept in, the Pope had set himself up in the temple as God by being proclaiming himself the vicar of Christ, blah, 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 blah. Now, okay, like, you could draw out a theological argument for, for how you're taking that. Do I think that, or do, did any of the reformers even think that Paul is writing about the particular popes during the 16th century? I doubt any of them would say that. And even if I'm going to accept um, their sort of appropriation of a passage like this in that context, that still doesn't, even if I accept it, uh, that, that, that doesn't exhaust this passage, right? Um, so all of that is, is a very long-winded way of just kind of saying like, I, th- I think there's sort of this hermeneutical principle with apocalyptic stuff of like, I don't want to be too quick to 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 do one to one connections, um, 
and I want to think about what's being what's being said here, like framing it in the conversation of the coming of the day of the Lord. Um, and even as we've done that, we've spent most of our time talking about the man of sin. But I think you get at least some of the points that I'm yeah. that I'm trying to make. <laughs> well, let me let me let me do this. So, I I do not think that this passage is talking about a future person or place necessarily. I think it can, but to to your the point that you've been trying to make is like that is not necessarily on the like that's not necessarily the point that Paul is trying to make. Like Paul is talking about this he says, "Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you brothers and sisters not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that this day has come." Um, do not, do not let anyone deceive you in any way. And then he says, for that day will not come. And so what he's talking about is he's, he's, he's addressing in, in this moment, a false teaching. He has said that concerning this day, someone, we don't know who, but someone has been trying to teach the church in Thessalonica that the day has come. And so Paul is saying that this day has not yet come because this is what's supposed to happen when it does come. And so what I this is what I was trying to get to about like one of the disadvantages of the tunnel of time is like as theological systems grew and developed like we we might be trying to fit uh, a framework into a passage that like it just it's like a square peg into a triangle hole or whatever and what I mean by that is like again first and foremost let's talk about this this he says um uh for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So first of all, we haven't even really talked about that, the apostasy, others say the rebellion. Um, but the, the Greek word apostasia, um, which is where we get this idea of apostasy, um, in light of the context of the whole chapter, apostasy expresses Paul's meaning well. He's likely thinking of some sort of future marked rejection of God's truth within the church. Or he might even be talking about like, if if we let like bad teaching continue, it will just lead to apostasy. Because he's, again, he's addressing a, a, a bad teaching. Um, but this second thing, this man of lawlessness, also referred to as the son of destruction, the lawless one, Paul is clear um, that this is a person that has yet to appear and that he is someone other than Satan. Because in, in, in verse nine, he says the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle and sign, um, which I guess maybe means it's Satan, but like I read it as meaning like that. It's not Satan. Um, yeah, but, no, that that's a good point. Yeah. But he, to go on, he's uh, a clue to hit this person's identity actually might lie in verse seven, where Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So lawlessness is both common to this man or person and the mystery. But while the man of lawlessness is future, Paul says, like this person's going to come in the future, the mystery of lawlessness is present. So what does Paul mean by the mystery of lawlessness? Um, he does not mean some sort of puzzle, some sort of riddle, you know, some sort of like Scooby-Doo investigation that we have to try to solve or like, you know, Sherlock Holmes or something. But in scripture, when we see the word mystery, um, it often refers to something that God had formerly concealed, but has now revealed. So Paul is saying that God has made known to us in his word, 
a present lawlessness that will come to climactic expression in the man of lawlessness. Um, since the man of lawlessness will be active within the church, we saw that he'll be active in the temple of God. But this present lawlessness is likely at work within the church itself as well. If so, then the false teaching that Paul is opposing is exhibit A of that lawlessness in the Thessalonian church. Um, which perhaps then is naturally to flow into this idea of a restrainer. So there is a restrainer of some kind, uh, keeping the man of lawlessness back. Who or what is it? Paul speaks of this restrainer in both personal terms, saying, he who now restrains it in, in 2.7, and impersonal terms in 2.6, what is restraining him now? So the restrainer could easily be a what or a who, um, but as I was looking here, one one commentary actually identified seven seven mainstream proposals as to the restrainer's identity, ranging from you know a civil magistrate like a Roman emperor, or the empire itself, um, the principle of law and order, um, to the church, to uh, angels or demons. Um, but it's at this point, it's impossible to be certain. So like. But since Paul is thinking of lawlessness that transpires within the church, the restrainer is probably also found within the church. So, you know, maybe the gospel message, the word of God, ministers of the word, government of the church, the spirit who indwells, some combination of any of these, really. But in any case, like, what's important is that the restrainer does precisely what God intends him or it to do, um, and for as long as God intends, um... So nothing, Paul says, that takes place in the church now or later falls outside of the providence of God. And I think that that's the more important thing is like the message that Paul is trying to communicate. He's not trying to go on like some eschatological end times tr triad about like, here's, here's this and this and this and this is going to happen and look for these signs and these wonders because obviously... They haven't happened yet. We're standing here. Well, Lucas and I are sitting 2,000 years removed from Paul's writing of this. So obviously the Thessalonians didn't see this future thing happening. So like it wouldn't have made sense to try to give them some like secret key or clue to unlock the, the eschaton. Um, but he's trying to give a message of hope in the midst of like the things that were very real and happening to them in their time. So the point... Um, I guess like that point that this is supposed to be a message of hope helps us see Paul's underlying message of comfort and hope. Um, like in all of the distressing events that befall the church, God is sovereign. He's all powerful. Even when things seem to be at their worst, when the lawless one is revealed, Jesus will appear and bring him to nothing. Like in, in essence, like Paul's concern here is like, you, you might, you, you know, there are people who might be trying to lead you to think that this day has come, but that is not true. That is a, a false, that is not, it's just not real. Jesus has not returned yet. You'll know when it happens. But the point is like, even when he comes, like Jesus is the one who, who is sovereign. So like our sovereign, all powerful God is, is also gracious Right? We've seen throughout the history, 2,000 years of the church, that God has continued to be gracious. He's continued to work in spite of very real human sin, um, both intentional and unintentional. You know, I think of like, um, you know, the 
around the era of the Reformation and, and just the, the, the divide that existed between um, the Catholic and the Reformers. Um, like that, <laughs> that's something that we still feel even today, right? We still have some of the, the repercussions, so to speak, of, of, a, of, of a divide like that one. Um, but I was reading, I was reading elsewhere in another commentary, and this one actually comes from like the ESV, um, like compositor, composite, I forget what the title is. It doesn't really matter, but, um, the commentator says this commentator speaking of himself anticipates a yet future appearing of a human lawless one whose manifestation amid false signs and prophecies will precede Jesus's return and final judgment. Whether or not there will be a physical temple in Jerusalem is not yet foreseeable. The more fundamental goal of this commentary on such matters, however, is to encourage humility with regard to all such speculation. God is faithful to his prophetic promises, yet the actual fulfillment of these promises often surprises. In the first advent of our Lord, Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, while comprehensible and wonderful in hindsight, was not anticipated properly by even the most faithful Jewish students of Scripture. Who in Judaism of Jesus' day, having studied Old Testament prophecy thoroughly, would have predicted that the Messiah would be God incarnate, or that he would come, be crucified, be raised, ascend, and then delay his return to establish his kingdom fully by at least two millennia? Thus, though it seems best to assume that the man of lawlessness is still to be revealed, the specifics of how that might look, including what is meant by his session in the temple, will likely surprise the best of interpreters. Only in hindsight will we understand the full intent of the prophetic word. Um, which I thought was just like a really keen insight into this idea and to prophecy in general. Like, what I've just said and like what this commentator has said is not to just like ignore prophecy because it's too difficult or too hard. We can do the difficult work of, of utilizing those maps of thinking critically and theologically about amillennialism and post and pre and so on and so forth. But the thing is, is like as best as we think we've, we've figured it out or cracked the code. I think at the end of the day, God is going to surprise us. Like, we are not going to get everything correct. And I think that that is actually a good thing. Like that causes us humility when we engage theologically, when we disagree with perhaps one another or with others outside of uh, this podcast or our church or whatever. Like when we do the difficult work of theology, it is not to puff ourselves up. It's not to... Uh, you know, gain some sort of superior knowledge over others. Like it is trying to make sense of and understand God and his word. But in the end, just like this, this, this uh, commentary says, like even the most brilliant and studied, we'll call them theologians of the Old Testament, they didn't understand what was to come. And I think in some ways we also are not understanding what is to come because just as John says, the world could not contain all of the books um, of the things that Jesus did. Like there's, there's not enough pages in the world to write about all the works and wonders and miracles. And if we were meant to know everything and how everything was supposed to work. And if we were, you know, if difficult passages were just really easily made apparent, then I think we would have that. 
But for, for whatever reason, God has chosen in his sovereignty, in his providence to give us his word as it is, not as some sort of puzzle or mystery that needs to be unlocked, um, but as a word of hope, as a word of, of reminder, um, to remain confident that like these things will happen. They might, they just might not happen how we think they'll happen. And I think the, the point is that they will happen not how they happen, but we get so distracted by the how or the why, because that's what like, for whatever reason, like mystery intrigues the human mind when we don't know something like if you've ever worked in an office, if you've ever um, somehow been privy to information that other people don't have, like there's just like something about it's, it's part of its gossip in a way, but like, we as people like to feel like we have knowledge that other people do not. And that is pride. That is trying to puff ourselves up with knowledge. Um, whereas time and time again, scripture exhorts us to be humble, to be meek, to be charitable, to um, to be kind and wise. And, you know, think of the fruits of the spirit, for example. So um, all that to say, I think it's fun. I think it's interesting to theorize, to to offer ideas of who or what these things might be. But at the end of the day, Paul was writing concerning the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord is something that we can look forward to and expect, whether it's in our lifetime or not. It certainly wasn't in their lifetime 2,000 years ago. But the point was, is like the day of the Lord is coming. There will be a day where he comes and returns and all is made right. So like, don't be distracted. Don't be troubled. Don't be easily upset by other teachings. <laughs> That's what Paul says in verse two. Do not be easily upset or troubled either by prophecy or message or letter alleging that this day has come. Like his point is to remain grounded in what has already been taught. Paul says, I've already come to you. Do you not remember what I said when I was still with you and used to tell you about this? Remain steadfast in that. Those other things like are just meant to distract, to, to lead you to lawlessness. I think that's at least like, I don't know. I'm the other thing I failed to mention is like, I am also just like you said, like when you were saying like, it might be Satan, like to, to correct you if you're wrong, like seriously, same here. Like if I'm wrong, I am, I am perfectly fine with that. I recognize that I'm a human, that I'm fallible, that I can only use so much of my brain to, to theorize and to come up with ideas. But but yeah, so if, if in listening to this, you, you've, you've got some other commentary or some other idea or some other teaching that I'm unaware of and you, and you reveal that to me, like I am open to that. I'm happy to be corrected. Um, but I think the point here is like remain grounded, remain steadfast, do not be blown away by every little thing that is going to come up and, and, and some of it maliciously, some of it, uh, you know, good intentioned, but I don't know. At the end of the day, Christ is coming await his coming, look forward to his coming. I don't know. What are, what are some, do you have thoughts on some of what I've said here? Does that, did I make sense? No, or is I mean, that, is some of that like yeah. goofy? No, no, no. I think that's really good and really helpful perspective when dealing with not just difficult text, but specifically like prophetic uh, type text, because it is, it is important and difficult <laughs> and sometimes painful to recognize like we are not in a position to be able to be dogmatic on those sorts of questions we just we aren't able to 
for sure without any room for error or doubt or nuance that we're unaware of be able to say like i said before this is that one to one that's the answer right and and so to have the humility to stand under the text rather than trying to stand over it and make it fit into what we expect or want or whatever the case may be um is is always important when interpreting scripture but doubly so when it's something that is more difficult to interpret because you're more likely to run into some sort of pitfall of pride if you're if you're dealing with a more difficult text um, if you're not careful so i think that'll probably wrap it up for us here with with the man of sin um yeah it's it's a it's a toughie it's it's obviously not (laughs) self-evident it's self-evidently not obvious (laughs) Exactly. But um, I hope that some aspect of this conversation at least was helpful in thinking through sort of some of the the ways to approach questions like this. So um, forgot to look up a prayer, but I think I think we've we've uh, we've we've spent some time in the word. So I feel a little bit okay with that. But thanks for tuning in. Thank you for um, submitting this suggestion for a topic, Jeremy. And thank you for everyone else for tuning in to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us further, you can find us on social medias occasionally at Doxology Podcast, or you can shoot us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We love future episode ideas. We love feedback and questions um, and corrections, especially on stuff like this where um, very much uh, no guarantees that we got everything right. So we look forward to hearing from you, and until next time, we'll see you.